0: Real insights and fresh perspectives on global events.
2: Tune in for a balanced view
0: of The Other Side of the News. Welcome. My name is Timothy Saunders. I'm one of your trio of co-hosts on this 51st edition of The Other Side of the News. I'm speaking to you this early morning from southwest Turkey, which for many of you may be situated on the other side of the globe. As the dawn chorus begins to practice its scales here, hopefully many of you are relaxing into your evening, eager to hear some fascinating insights from our latest guest. I will soon be joined by co-host and producer Kintia, together with co-host and researcher Annette Driscoll, who is speaking this evening, as usual, from the infamous wheelhouse in the Bay Area. This show is entitled, Untangling Our Inverted World. As the UK marks the end of its first year under the WHO's pandemic regulations, the weak-minded puppet government had the gall to ask the people who elected them to stand at noon for a minute's silence, misdirecting their guilt to the sad loss of those people who have, in many cases, unnecessarily fallen victim with, but in 99.94% cases, not from COVID-19. As we have demonstrated time and time again, this pandemic is unjustified. While those who are calling the shots literally, desperately continue to intensify their narrative based on an increasingly thin veil of common sense, logic, real science and truth. Keith, please play sound excerpt A.
3: Johnson is flanked today by Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty and Chief Scientific Advisor Patrick Vallance. And they've been talking in the last uh, little while, or short while, about the chances of eradicating coronavirus. What do they have to say? Let's listen in.
4: I regret to say But I think the chances of eradicating this disease, which means getting rid of it absolutely everywhere, are as close to zero as makes no difference. We've only achieved eradication of one disease, which is smallpox, with a phenomenally effective vaccine over a very very long period of time, literally hundreds of years. So, um, and others have come close, but it's very difficult. In terms of eliminating from the UK, this is a disease which uh, is got mostly, it's not a disease,
3: It's not a disease. You're listening to Chris Whitty, the country's chief medical officer, by the way, standing alongside Boris Johnson. I'm going to carry on here. I'm not going to interrupt it for for too long. Um, But it isn't a disease at all. It's if it's anything at all. And I don't know if it even is anything. It's a respiratory infection. It's basically influenza is what it is. Not a disease,
4: right? effective vaccine over a a very long period of time literally hundreds of years. Okay. So, um, and others have come close, but it's very difficult. In terms of eliminating from the UK, this is a disease which uh, is got most people who have it have mild symptoms or in some cases
3: no symptoms. Who- Unbelievable. Most people who have it, mild symptoms or no symptoms. Most people. The fucking bastard is even admitting that today on March 23rd, 2021 to a gaggle of useless journalists who won't take him to the cleaners. He's just admitted it again, that COVID is basically fuck all. The only people who should be scared of it are people that are already diabolically ill, seriously ill, or very, very, very old, as is the case for any other infection. He's admitting it. They're laughing in our faces, these people.
4: ...can then transmit it. That makes it very difficult to find. We have good L- Listen again, listen again. You can't make this shit off. In terms of eliminating from the UK, this is a disease which uh, is got most people who have it have mild symptoms or in some cases no symptoms who can then transmit it. That makes it very difficult to find.
3: Makes it difficult to find. <laughs> this is fucking vaudeville. This is vaudeville. They've wrecked the country. They've ruined the lives of millions of children, they've bankrupted people, they've, they've destroyed people's businesses, their babies, the things they've built up for years. Unemployment, record numbers, mental health, cancer operations cancelled, hundreds of thousands if not millions will fucking die. And this dickhead has the fucking balls to address the UK media today and laugh in their fucking faces and say that this is a disease that most people who get only have mild symptoms or fucking none at all! You've got to look very hard to find it! He fucking said, again! Listen to it again! I'm sorry for getting irate, but this is fucking shocking, yes. this.
4: So, um, and others have come close, but it's very difficult. In terms of eliminating from the UK, this is, horrendous. This is a disease which uh, is got most people who have it have mild symptoms, or in some cases, no symptoms, who can then transmit it. That makes it very difficult to find. We have good vaccines, very good vaccines. They're not 100% effective vaccines. Uh, we have good tests, but not everybody who needs testing uh, is tested ah. and really wouldn't strongly encourage people to do that. I think everyone agrees we can get COVID rates right down.
3: Yeah. I don't need to tell you, not a single journalist in the room had the balls to ask him. So yet again, you've told us, a year on from the first time you told us, this is an infection that doesn't do squat to the vast majority of the population, right? Right? So what the fuck was the last 12 months all about then?
0: Now, that was a passionate excerpt from the Richie Allen radio show, Europe's most-listened-to-independent radio show broadcast on Tuesday, 23rd of March, who was commenting on a parallel live briefing from the United Kingdom's government. As hundreds and thousands of now-censored doctors and medical specialists around the world have clearly stated, the truth is COVID-19 has not yet been isolated, and the death rate does not come anywhere close to the guesstimated case rate which is underpinned by an inappropriate polymerase chain reaction process, or PCR, that can be geared up or down in terms of the number of cycles to generate the desired result to suit the narrative. This is pure tyranny. Regarding the inappropriate PCR, it has come to light the long swabs are treated with a well-known and long-established carcinogen called ethylene oxide, You will only need to type this into your search engine to find pages of official information showing just how dangerous this chemical actually is. So why is ethylene oxide being used to coat the swabs that are being thrust into the depths of the nasal cavity of millions or billions of people on the planet? And if the puppet leaders have their way, each of us will be mandated to repeat this several times a week. Perhaps the PCR has an additional use. Could it be designed to damage us? There are many videos in circulation this week showing testimonies from people who claim symptoms from frequent PCR users. That include anything from mental illness, Morgellons fibers with a life of their own seen wriggling under microscopy and announcements of death. Check the packaging. The PCR shows EO, this stands for ethylene oxide. You may now consider thinking twice before acting once with this less than innocent swab kit. Perhaps expressly designed to boost case numbers, which in turn is aimed to fearmonger us to take the experimental jab. Surprising to some, the number of deaths has increased since the influx of the jab. The reason is surely obvious. I offer a slight pause while the virtual tumbleweed enters stage left and exits stage right. Of course, the jab itself may be injuring and killing large numbers of people you may recall last week we played a long excerpt from an important interview with dr geert van den bosch a very well respected pro-vaccine scientist and developer who recently decided to publicly announce a complete use her and warning in terms of mass injecting the world at large if you have yet heard this key interview I highly recommend you go search our free archives to listen and share this with anyone you care about sooner than later. This pro-vaccine scientist is not alone with this U-turn, this jab does not even meet the CDC's own definition of a vaccine, which appears to be causing more damage than the alleged virus it is purporting to protect us from. The CDC states a vaccine is something that stimulates immunity to prevent the spread of a disease. While the current jabs are engineered to hack our immune system to activate against the COVID-19, there is no off button, no going back, which may cause significant problems in itself. You may like to check out Dr. Dolores Carhill. Further, it is highly questionable if this hack will render our immune system useless against other potential infections in the future. However, for the minority and their troop of weak-minded puppets, the beauty of this jab being termed a vaccine is that big pharma and anyone else it would seem are exempt from any liability this is most likely the only reason why the likes of astrazeneca moderna johnson and johnson and pfizer borrow this terminology which has only been passed through emergency channels so the cdc openly admit actual deaths do not match case numbers that's after admitting the pcr results are unreliable that's after stating the vaccine will not prevent COVID-19 from being transmitted, and will not necessarily protect individuals from COVID-19 infection. That's after telling us two masks are best than one. That's after telling the world masks are not helpful. So these experimental jabs have not ended useless mask wearing, anti-social distancing, or strangulation of our economy through lockdowns. Why is anyone actually listening to this incompetent, patent-holding, profit-taking mouthpiece for minority manipulators? the CDC is supposed to stand for the Center of Disease Control and Prevention. However, with their track record, not to mention previous chapters about AIDS, autism, and third-world testing, etc., perhaps the CDC should stand for Center for Deception and Corruption. Oh, and if it's not enough to run this life-altering mRNA global experiment on adults, now Moderna has started testing children between the age of six months to 12 years while Pfizer will test children above 12 years of age. Who in their right mind would volunteer their own children for this? When even animal testing, which I'm not a fan of, has previously proven to be so utterly catastrophic this type of experimentation. Why do people still buy into this? Why are they not using their common sense? What happened to their critical thinking? With the lockdown measures in place and emergency government requests being granted to continue at least until next September, how can these alleged variants cause the new waves? These new variants and waves are simply tools to create fear porn, to fearmonger, an addicted and terrified group of individuals who have become subservient to the minority. It is this group I really hope will wake up before they commit themselves to volunteering to be part of the largest and potentially most dangerous social engineering experiment in our recorded history. I very much look forward to hearing our guests' perspective regarding this essential awakening process. All of you to illuminate the best path to lead us to a positive outcome. You'll find us at www.theothersideofmidnight.com. Click on the other side of the news in the drop down menu or kindly scroll down to tonight's white, the other side of the news show banner. There you will see details for the show, quick links to our bios, as well as links to our show items, references and selected research. As usual, there is a huge collection of information to read, watch and listen to, most of which has been handpicked from independent sources. I urge you to study them and even download your own copies sooner than later as the censorship robots are working around the clock to rewrite our history in real time. During the last seven days, we have been inundated by a deluge of remarkable events and headlines reported in the news. To discuss and present each topic in the correct context, to all too easily fill up the entire show by itself. As the other side of the news is not per se, a typical news show. And in order to make the best use of our available airtime, I believe we should plot a direct course to greet the rest of our team and to introduce our guests. Tonight we have Dr. Joseph P. Farrell. Good evening, Kintia. Good evening, Annetta. This pandemic seems to have more waves than the Titanic leaving Southampton on our maiden voyage. Have you discovered Eddie in the Bay Area?
5: Yes, absolutely. We are experiencing Eddies all around the world, including here. And good evening, Timothy. Good evening, Cynthia. So this is Anetta, and we have had such a wild week. It's It's been incredible. I mean, it's very hard to keep up with everything. And many things are, hmm, what's really happening here? And what does this really mean? And is it attached to this and that? And I have actually put a huge amount of uh, work into that. So instead of trying to cram it into this little tiny spot we have, because we have a really interesting guest tonight, and I want to save as much time for him as possible. So what I'm going to do is make an additional bonus recording that you can play after the show. That's what I'm going to do. But I will say I'm going to cover quite a few things, including some really interesting stuff that you might not have heard about what's happening in the Suez and what that could mean, um, some various things about the craziness of the uh, desperate uh, minority to try to keep us in line, some of the great news that's been happening around the world with people standing up, all kinds of things, historical references. It's all going to be in there. So I encourage you to go over there and check it out. And until then, I'm going to hand it over to Kinthea.
2: Thanks, Anetta. Personally, I'm feeling the urgency to be mindful of the thoughts I'm holding. Everything is accelerating. Mass media and the movie industry have invested millions of dollars to direct the flow of our consciousness into fear. As Bruce Lipton points out, physics is demonstrating that particles follow consciousness. That is, particles matter follow the direction of consciousness. Even Princeton University has the Global Consciousness Project, in which they are tracking the corollary between consciousness and matter. So what happens to the masses when we are focused on doom and dystopia? That which I have feared has come upon me. Let me repeat that. That which I have feared has come upon me. The great biblical text, so true. What is needed, critically needed now more than ever, is for humanity, even small pockets of humanity, to hold the vision of the loving solution. We're on the precipice. We're at a point of choice as to which direction humanity will go. So it's ever important that we hold that awareness of the future that we want, I'm not even going to say what that looks like as to how these dire issues will resolve. But I can say that we can vision a world in which the population is healthy and resilient. A world where we are in harmony with nature, not afraid of it. Where our bodies, our immune systems protect us. A world that welcomes and celebrates our individuality our creativity, our innate wisdom, a world in which we respect and cherish the uniqueness of each culture, a world that is compassionate and unified in that compassion. We can vision a planet with a healthy ecosystem to support life abundantly as we hold this vision, just as Bruce Lipton says, we can have a spontaneous remission for our entire world. And this is my dedicated focus. Know that we're not trying to share material to scare you. Rather, we hope to dispel the lies and return us to sanity, return us to love, love for each other, love for our world. I ask you, What are you dedicating your focused intent to? What is the world you'd like to see? Contemplate that, vision that, remind yourself throughout the day. Together, we will bring that world into being. A world that is whole and healthy. A world that is abundant a world that is compassionate. It is the only solution I see that will resolve the standoff between the divided sides. So, with that, I'd like to turn our attention to our guest tonight, Dr. Joseph P. Farrell. Born and raised in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Joseph P. Farrell has a doctorate in patristics from the University of Oxford, and pursues research in physics, alternate history and science, and strange stuff. His book, The Giza Death Star, was published in the spring of 2002 and was his first venture into alternative history and science. Following a paradigm of researching the relationship between alternative history and science, Farrell has followed with a stunning series of books, each conceived to stand alone but each also conceived in a prearranged sequence oh my goodness the books go on and on over 27 to date i urge you to go to giza that's g i z a d e a t h s t a r.com and there you'll find the link to his huge library of books. So welcome, Joseph. I'm going to bring Anetta back on to start off our conversation.
5: Good evening. We are here this evening with our guest, Dr. Joseph Farrell, and he is joining us for the show "Untangling Our Inverted World." And so we're going to start with a few questions just to get to know you, Joseph. I actually was reading a little bit about you and I read that you like organ works and you have an organ named Bruno <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I have to tell you that I grew up when my father was like a huge organ work fan. I grew up going to Bach recitals and going to cathedrals all around the world and and uh, so I, I know about the mathematics and all of the stuff that goes into that so I wanted to hear what your particular love is and how you got into that and what drew you in. Into
6: organ music? Well, when I I was a kid, um, I grew up in the Methodist, Old Methodist Episcopal Church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And I, I would beg my parents to take me to adult church rather than be shipped off to Sunday school because adult church was so much more interesting. And it was one of those churches that had balconies along the sides, and the balcony that they would sit in overlooked the organ. And I was just fascinated watching the organist, you know, pushing all those buttons and
7: and making that
6: complicated machinery work. So I fell in love with the organ at a very, very early age and begged my parents uh, to give me organ lessons, which I started when I was about six years old. So I grew up with the instrument. Um, I played my first pipe organ at that Methodist church uh, for my sister's wedding when I was nine years old. I could barely reach the pedals. <laughs> but but uh, I was sort of sitting at an angle, let's put it that way, to make, to make it work. But I fell in love with the instrument, and uh, I continued taking and studying organ until I went off to college. So it was about uh, it was about 10 years I was involved with the instrument. And when I got into college I um uh, one thing led to another and I just sort of lost contact with it and Catherine Fitz was here about three or four years ago recording one of her wrap ups and I was very tired and she kinda asked me, Well, what what's what are you so down for? And I said, Well, you know, I really miss the organ and and playing it. I haven't played one in forty years and so she says, Well, let's just crowdfund an organ. <laughs> buy you an organ so she crowdfunded this this virtual pipe organ that's what my organ is it's it's a uh, it's an electronic instrument but what they do is they take digital sound samples of famous organs so you can actually reproduce famous organs right in your home so i have uh i have four different pipe organs on that on that console plus a pedal harps chord because i like to play I like to play harpsichord as well, so that's that's the story behind Bruno and what got me into it. Does um, it have
2: foot pedals?
6: Oh, sure, of course. Organs oh, always wow. to sure. to play organ music, you have to have full. Yeah, I was pedal.
2: wondering.
6: Yeah, and is it have,
2: pressure sensitive?
6: No, that's the only thing about an electronic instrument that is unusual. Um, if you're not familiar with ac- keyboard action on organs, there's there's basically three different types. In the Baroque era, of course, all the action from the keyboard to the pipe valve is mechanical. Uh-huh. Uh, in in the nineteenth century in France, Cavea Cole came up with pneumatic action. And then the modern organ is either all electric or electrical pneumatic action. So the only type of organ that you can actually get a slight difference in the sound, depending on how hard you hit the key, is on those Baroque mechanical instruments um, on, all, kn- mm-hmm. on, on all other organs the way you accent things is by subtly playing with the timing of the attack and the release uh, that that sounds very complicated but um, it's oh. it's actually the way organists accent mm-hmm. things you play around right. with timing because
2: um, I know they're electronic pianos that you know you can go pianissimo or forte right so it's a very strong difference between the electronic organ and piano
6: yes organs are there's because the organ is based on wind pressure there's no actual difference in the sound that comes out of the pipe when the key Ah, is pressed but On a mechanical instrument, you can control the chiff, in other words, the popping sound that the air makes when it first goes through the pipe, depending on how hard you hit the key. Mm. But that's not true on most instruments. On a mechanical, in fact, on a mechanical instrument, what you're literally doing at the keyboard is you're overcoming the pressure in the wind chest and also the pressure of of the mechanism between the key and the pipe valve. So if you are pulling more stops, the pressure on the keyboard actually increases slightly. And if you are coupling manuals on those mechanical instruments, the pressure on the manual that you're playing goes up dramatically. So those mechanical instruments can be quite a physical workout.
2: When you say pulling stops, are you talking about like pulling out something from the pipe that, like I no, imagine- no 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 the
6: the stops are those little knobs that you see on pipe organ consoles. The stop is a rank of pipes that makes a particular sound, so the more stops on those mechanical instruments that you're pulling, you're adding all of the that mechanical action to the pressure that you have to exert on the keyboard.
7: Uh-huh. So
6: that's why they can be quite a physical workout. Uh, And trust me, I've played those mechanical action instruments. In fact, I played one when I was in grad school that was a mechanical action instrument. And after six months of that, I went home and shook my father's hand, and he actually winced, and he was a very strong man. It was was because my hands had – the musculature in my hands had become accustomed to playing that mechanical action pipe organ.
5: I love the organ, too. So cool. I didn't know that they had samplings from all the cathedrals organs around the world. That's just really interesting.
6: Well, it's a new technology that's really been enabled by the explosion of, of computer technology. These things really only started to emerge about 10 years ago. So these these virtual pipe organs have become quite the, quite the ticket for, for organists wanting to practice at home because... You know, growing up, the biggest problem for me was arguing with church committees and, you know, getting permission, you know, just to get time to practice on, on a pipe organ. And any organist that, that grew up in that era will know what I'm talking about. So, so oh. these virtual pipe organs not only permit you to play the actual instruments and hear them in their acoustical setting. Uh but they, they solve that dilemma of trying to get practice time, you know, and juggle choirs and, and church organists and so on that, you know, want their time on the instrument. So they they're really quite a quite an interesting technology. As for the music itself, I'm I'm pretty much stuck with, with the Baroque era, although I do like Mendelssohn and Vidor and some of the romantic uh organ composers as well.
5: Interesting. So I love Bach and uh, you talk about Baroque um, composers. And um, by the way, I, I, I really love harpsichords and clavichords too. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> you, you know, it's like somehow that goes together. I'm not sure, but yes. So with Bach, you know, I mean, he was, he was a mathematical, these organ works are so mathematically correct, uh, kind mm-hmm. of like some of the things that you've studied as far as you know all the math and geometry that goes into, say, pyramids. But let's talk about music for a moment here. Mm-hmm. And and how do you think? I mean, I have my theories on it about how these uh, people got this information
7: mm-hmm. that
5: they, you know, wrote down, and we consider it, you know, the the they're, you know these genius composers. But What's your feeling on that, and and how that um, occurs, that process?
7: Well, it's
6: it's not a feeling. It's actually it's actually rooted in in the uh, cosmology and and music theory from let's say beginning with the Renaissance on up into the Baroque and early classical era. If you look at a Baroque piece of music, uh, an orchestral piece of music in particular, you will see the bass line is noted in the music but above that uh there are numbers on the score six four five three so on and so forth and these will occur above the line. and what that indicates it's a method of, of composition called figured bass because composers at that time did not think in terms of chords in other words a c a c major chord and then it's root first and, and second inversions. They didn't think that way at all. They thought of the relationships of the notes in mathematical intervals. And they learned their uh, harmonic progressions and so on by looking at the intervals. So when you're listening to an 18th century Baroque piece, you'll hear the harpsichorders playing what's called a continuo. And the continuo is literally ad-libbed by the keyboard player on the spot by looking at those numbers which indicate the harmony in that particular spot that he's supposed to play. Mm
7: -hmm.
6: So he's literally making, it's kind of like Baroque jazz, if you you want to think of it in a certain way. Mm -hmm. But they thought very, very differently. They thought in a very mathematical way about the music. And there are deeper aspects of this because there's a doctrine that that composers in that era used that was called effectenlehere, which means the doctrine of the affections. So there were actual certain figurations that will recur over and over in their music that are sort of like uh musical versions of rhetorical tropes and, and themes like that. So they also thought in a highly rhetorical fashion about their music and how they could exercise certain permutations of basic ideas to create more music. So it's a very, very different um, approach to music. One of the things that helps people, I think, is to understand that the music theorists at that time would borrow their terms, their technical terms, from alchemy directly directly. So in other words, alchemy is all about, you know, the prime matter and permuting it and creating more stuff out of it. Well, yeah. this is the way they thought about music. So in a certain sense, it was kind of a, a grand intellectual alchemical exercise.
5: Interesting. That's fascinating. I hadn't ever heard it uh, presented that way because I mean, I, I know that Beethoven would sit down and, and the whole symphony would roll out of him, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one sitting and I and, uh, I have experienced that with many people that were inventors, scientists, Mm -hmm. uh, artists, and they they seem to have this ability to download or channel or whatever label you'd like to give it, but they, they roll Mm -hmm. it on out, which kind of takes me to the next idea Mm -hmm. about, you know, zero point alchemy or inventions and how they come, how they come to us and and how that process is working.
6: Well, in, in, If you study J.S. Bach's music, he had a concept that he would call Forchspinning, spinning spinning forth. So if you listen to, let's say, a a harpsichord concerto by J.S. Bach, you'll hear the, the theme or the motif, the basic idea of the entire piece presented in the first few measures. And most everything you hear after that is some sort of permutation of that basic idea. It's torn apart, played backwards, turned upside down, the note values are stretched or shortened, uh the motif is chopped up and rearranged and presented in different orders and so on. So basically uh you're dealing, again, with the idea of invention, but it's it's a very controlled invention. It's not just sitting down and, and batting out something on the keyboard and saying, oh, that sounds nice, I'm gonna stick that here. <laughs> you know, it's it's a very thought-out process.
5: Okay, so that 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 is, I think that's what I was trying to get to at the beginning, which is the mathematical mm-hmm. qual- qualities of this. Because I do know, you know, it goes forward, backwards, all, mm-hmm. all kinds of permutations on that. So um, I had never heard that term of fork, How do you say fork? Forkspinum, fork
6: spinning, spinning forth.
5: Spinning forth, Okay, mm-hmm. that's totally new to me. <laughs> Great. Okay, so I did want to talk a little bit about inventions and, mm-hmm. and how we, you know, how those ideas come in, um, how science is, like there's the, the process of discovery versus, you know, invention is not the same thing necessarily. And to kind of push it in the direction I'd like to go is is um, how science kind of went black uh, or, you know, just went into, I don't know, this uh Stopped or stalled a lot after World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, can, can you elaborate on that? Well,
6: I think science. If you look at physics, and again, I'm not a scientist. I want I want to make that very clear. I'm a hat from South Dakota, but I have kind of an interest in it. But if you look at physics, physics kind of went into a dead end. Um, and I think there's there's three culprits. Uh, in that story, the first is James Clark Maxwell, because he used a form of mathematics in his, his presentation of, of electromagnetic theory that scientists do not use anymore. Uh, he, used a, he used a kind of mathematics called quaternions. And in that mathematics, you end up with what's called a scalar potential which you can kind of visualize if you draw a bunch of arrows on a piece of paper that sum to zero, okay? In other words, draw an arrow of one length and draw an arrow in the opposite direction of the same length and that sums to zero. Now, if you, if you concentrate on the point at which the arrows meet, Maxwell would say that there is force, a a sheer magnitude of force there. It's kind of enfolded internally to that structure, and that he called the scalar potential. Well, that was edited out of his equations by a British physicist by the name of Oliver Heaviside. And the the equations of electromagnetics that you learn now are Heaviside's equations, not Maxwell's. So what what has happened is that you can imagine several different structures where all those vectors sum to zero. I gave you an example of using two, but you can envision very easily by sitting down on a piece of paper and graphing it out, two or three or more arrows that don't move the system. They all sum to zero. Well, if you study modern physics, most physicists are going to throw out that enfolded structure even though those internal structures might be different. You can envision three arrows all converging on a point that sum to zero. And a physicist will look at that and say, well, that's a zero vector, and it sums to zero. Um, So you're equating different internal folding structures that are really not equivalent. But if you're only looking at the outside structure, they are equivalent. Follow me? I
5: think so.
6: Okay. I hope so. That's that's, that's the... that's the first uh, wrong turn as far as I'm concerned. The second, I think, uh, to a certain extent, comes with, with the various relativity theories because you're dealing with a, an assumption there that uh, basically says that the speed of light is the same for all frames of reference. The problem is the, the assumption being that you can only measure the, the speed of light going in one direction. <laughs> so that's the other problem here. The third, I think, is quantum mechanics, um, because quantum mechanics, like so much other physics, kind of threw out that that internal structure of things. So uh, structure of things. So what we've got now is an ever expanding quantum theory where we're inventing particles for each and every little force that they can think of. And this particle zoo has obviously grown since the simple days of protons, electrons, and neutrons. We've now got quarks and gluons and hadrons and bosons and mesons, and on and on it goes. And the theory is becoming, uh, it's becoming overburdened, I think. So I, those are the three areas where I think you look at, at science and, and see kind of a dead end. And a lot of it, as you say, and that went black. And we we hear little odd things from time to time. Uh, ben Rich, the old uh, late director of the Skunk Works, who's alleged to have said things like, uh, well, we found an error in the equations, and now we can take ET home. Well, my question is, whose equations? <laughs> what equations? But if you have those examples of some major assumptions being made in the history of physics, beginning with Maxwell, then then you get a kind of a clue as to where some of those things might be.
0: Joseph, it's Timothy here. Uh, mm-hmm. Good evening. Mm-hmm. I would like to just underline other things that went dark at that time as well. I mean, mm-hmm. we call it, it sort of developed into the Cold War. But before that, there were a number of very important elements that went dark. For example, a lot of gold went missing. Uh, oh yes. Japanese <laughs> gold and other monies. Uh, I've the, talked about that. <laughs> you certainly have. Uh, but I think it's it's very interesting to sort of highlight a few of these points now because you know our title, uh, untangling our inverted world. I think it's important to understand, take a reality check where we are today and it sort of you know discussed some of the milestones that led us to this point but a lot of an awful lot of money went dark. Mm-hmm. Um, we have at a similar time we have Roswell which could be um, a, a sacrificial lamb in the media perhaps who knows um, to hide or, or distract from what actually was going on in the background. We have as you say the beginning of skunk works, we have a lot of secret programs, we have a paperclip, we have any number of other different plans that went dark. So, Aneta, while I understand what you're saying, physics kind of stopped after the Second World War, I think that that is a perception as opposed to reality. I think the reality is that actually it kicked off big time, but in secret. Yes. What would you say?
6: Oh, I, I would, would totally absolutely agree. agree. I would absolutely agree. And the reason why... And I've written several books about this basic idea, um, and Catherine Austin Fitz has basically said the same thing, although she comes to the problem from a very different approach, but we end up basically in the same place. For my part, you mentioned the Japanese gold, so people have to understand that Japan, during the Second World War, uh, launched a a loot operation basically on a scale that almost makes the Nazi looting operation in Europe pale by comparison. It was called Operation Golden Lily, and this was in under the the charge of a prince of the imperial household. So in other words, this was very very black, and they recovered an enormous amount of bullion from their conquests in China and then uh, during the rest of the war in Indonesia and so on. And at the end of the war, towards the end of the war, General Yamashita, the Japanese uh, general in charge of the Philippine archipelago, had a lot of this loot buried around the Philippines. And America recovered some of it, but here's the key part of the story. When President Truman was briefed on the existence of all of this Japanese loot, He authorized the National Security Council to recover this gold and use it as a secret slush fund for covert operations. So bang, right there at the end of the Second World War, we have the American intelligence community being put into the banking business. And what this also indicates is that you've set up now a a hidden system of finance where you're recovering amounts of bullion that we really do not know the exact amount recovered. So this enables you to rehypothecate that gold and whatever other bullion you may have recovered in order to keep that system going. Now, here's the clincher. Why are they doing this? Now, in my estimation, the amounts of of money were far too large to merely support covert operations. So I strongly suspect they set up this hidden system of finance as a means of funding black projects. Mm -hmm. And that the reason that they did so was that there was a strategic problem that they faced. They had the communist bloc to worry about, plus they had a UFO problem. And I believe that they used this money to fund a mega Manhattan project that they knew would have to last for several decades in order to emulate the performance characteristics of UFOs. So in other words, they set up a huge black projects uh, bureau, essentially. And they created a hidden system of finance that lasted for several decades to finance it. And now we see it, you know, with the FASB 56 regulations that were promulgated uh, a couple of years before the end of the Trump administration that basically took the entire federal government budget black. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, this system has reached out now and engulfed virtually everything in order to keep this Black Projects research going. And the important point to take away from this is that if physics dead-ended, I'm with you, I think a lot of it went into this Black Projects. And as a result, you really have not only an off-the-books, completely hidden system of finance,
0: you have an off-the-books, completely hidden system of science. Exactly, exactly. And I think that certain gophers have now been popping up to, mm-hmm. to take the, the analogy further mm-hmm. out of sort of uh, out of from the underground in different positions. I mean, that let's just put on the side for one second that I think that it's, it's taken that the Nazi party continued in South America and some of the prominent leaders or members also continued well after the Second World War. And I think the Nazi mm-hmm. party did not surrender. Mm -hmm. um in the second world war so the fourth reich if you like to call it that um is sort of was or may even still be alive and well Mm -hmm. um which may be a difficult pill for some people to swallow even today but there's certainly a lot of evidence that shows that that is the case Um, well i've written
6: i've written a lot of books about that very thesis um of a post-war Extraterritorial Nazi state that I call the Nazi International, mm-hmm. um, because I, I'm agreed with you. I think it's a, a very pervasive but very hidden influence in world affairs, and the most telling example of this for me is Klaus Schwab, because when you dig, oh, yes, when, <laughs> yeah. You know, I call him Dr. No, you know, I mean, he's he's like that character from the James
0: Bond films, you know, in charge of Spectre. Dr. You're, Boat, you're, you're Dr. far Boat. more kind. You're far more kind than I am. I call him Klaus Anal that's. Uh,
6: <laughs> well, yeah, the same idea, because if you dig into his family background, you discover all sorts of interesting connections, uh not the least. Of which are to wartime Nazi nuclear research and secret projects, and a particular company in Germany that continued those secret nuclear projects <laughs> well after the war, in conjunction with South Africa, and on and on we could go. So, yeah, you. I, I you know I think I think that Ian Fleming, when he was talking about Spectre and, and conjuring you know German villains carrying white cats, <laughs> was probably not too far off.
0: I think he has an exact person in his target. Yes, exactly, incredible. No, it, it's. Uh, I also heard he had uh, potentially more than one mother, not um, as offspring, but mother figures, and mm-hmm. one of them may well have been uh, Jewish, which is interesting, especially considering uh, that the period of time and the, the part of the world he came from. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- there's quite a lot of information again. It's difficult to nail down fact from fiction, but you know what? It just doesn't surprise me.
6: Well, uh, on the fact part of it, there—you know—I wrote a book called *The Nazi International*, and a, a great deal of that book explored the, the post-war uh, fusion research of a Nazi scientist by the name of Ronald Richter, down in Argentina, of all places. Mm. And the connections fan out from there. But in other words, what we're dealing with is, is a group of scientists that continued their research after the war, and that implies funding. <laughs> so yes. we're, back, you know, we're back to hidden systems of finance.
0: And a huge amount of funding. I think was Richter involved in this um, heavy water production plant in South America? Wasn't there also like a large hydroelectric uh,
6: well, Project I see generate. that we're coming up 60 seconds to the break, but we can get into Richter after the break because it's a long and complicated story, <laughs> but, well, but basically, yes.
0: Well, let's do that because I think that uh, our friend Mr. Schwab, who now is involved in all things to do with turbines and, and uh, oh, things that rotate, that may oh, also oh. be a nice segue later in the show to get into torsion physics, which I'm sure which our friend Richard Hoagland would also enjoy. So, you're listening to The Other Side of the News. Tonight's show is Untangling Our Inverted World. Uh, Special guest is Dr. Joseph P. Farrell, and I'm one of your co-hosts, Timothy Saunders, Annette Driscoll, and Kintia.
4: They are so few, they're in the thousands. We are billions, we are billions of people. So they need technology, very advanced technology, to be able to control us. And that is where AI, 5G, comes in. And then through the vaccine, also get rid of two thirds of us. So it's like a very, very, very dark agenda. They want to play out. But I tell you, the way I see the future, oh my God, fantastic. Oh, like my mom said, fan-bloody-tastic.
1: Hi, this is Oliver Good
4: from LightOnConspirities.com. You know, over the years I've done some 500 to 1,000 international interviews, and I just want to say the other side of the news is one
1: of my favorite shows. So, Enjoy.
2: To the other side of the news, our guest tonight is Dr. Joseph P. Farrell, and the show is Untangling Our Inverted World. Co-hosting tonight are Timothy Saunders, Annette Driscoll, and myself, Kinthea. And Timothy, you were left us with a cliffhanger. (laughs) Joseph, I want to hear the rest of the story, so take it away.
0: Well, it's not my cliffhanger. Joseph, it's your cliffhanger. I'd love to hear more (laughs) about Richter. Well, Let's Dr. Him.
6: Dr. Ronald Richter was a a Nazi scientist that ended up in Argentina and in 1952 Juan Peron gave a press conference to the press of the world announcing that Argentina had solved the problem of the hydrogen bomb. Now, we hadn't even detonated our first one yet. And he introduced Dr. Richter and Richter Hamden-Hawden made his statements, but this was immediately denounced in the world press uh, because he was claiming to have achieved fusion reactions at temperatures far below what was needed in the thinking at that time for hydrogen bombs. So Peron called in an Argentinian expert and a few other people to question Richter, and this is where it gets very interesting because I reproduce all of these Air Force documents in my book, The Nazi International. And one of the things that Richter claimed was that he was getting fusion reactions by rotating the plasma and then shocking it with high voltage electricity. And, you know, there was nothing in, in the textbooks at the time that indicated that was possible. So again, he was roundly denounced by the Argentinian scientists for being a fraud in a mountebank. But Richter said something very interesting, that he was getting these reactions with lithium-7. Okay, And this is an important part of the story because when we detonated our first hydrogen bomb and then later a, another famous hydrogen bomb test called Castle Bravo – which had a pre-detonation calculated yield of about five to seven megatons. But when they lit the thing off, it ran away to 15 megatons. You know? A, a, yeah, 15. Well. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a little bit of an oops there, folks. Yeah. And the Air Force came out with the story, well, uh, part of the mixture of the lithium deuteride was, was lithium seven, and we didn't think that that would enter the reaction. And this is this is why Richter is so important because he said that you know he was getting these reactions from lithium 7 2 years before <laughs> okay so this caused a bit of an interest in the air force and they went sent people down to Argentina to interview Dr. Richter and this was this was all classified until about the 1970s I think it was and when you read when you read Richter's statements the air force people interviewing him were just baffled and they continued most of the scientists that interviewed him continued to say well this guy's a fraud in the mountebank but one one american scientist said no 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 this guy is so far ahead of us he's thinking in the 1970s and you know at the time that the interviews took place was about the mid 1950s and one of the things that richter said and I'm I'm paraphrasing very badly now, but one of the things that Dr. Richter said was that we assume that a plasma functions as a kind of transducer or gate to, and these are his words, to what we call the zero-point energy. In other words, what he was saying was that fusion reactions, thermonuclear reactions, are gating energy into the reaction from let's just call it a hyperdimensional, you know, hyperspace time of some sort. That's basically what he's saying. <laughs> and, and you know, once you once you once you clue into what he was saying, then that puts the whole thermonuclear <laughs> thermonuclear bomb thing into a whole different area. And I hypothesize that because of that. Um, nations that that become nuclear powers and particularly thermonuclear powers are finding that their yield calculations are all amiss as a result of that because they're not factoring those types of things into their thinking so yeah there's there's all sorts of stuff going on, but Richter himself you know all of those all of those documents about those interviews were were declassified, and it's very funny because the Air Force didn't really know what to make of the guy. <laughs>
0: Well it, absolutely. I mean, it, it sounds like he was just telling it fairly straight, but nobody was taking him seriously. I mean, that's right. an incredible story. So under the snowdrift of uh, yeah what what purports to be the truth, underneath we have this incredible underground, mm-hmm. uh, unlimited funds, because, as you say, even if the funds themselves, which were huge. Even if they were not sufficient, the point is you can keep moving them around, like shunting a train around a, right. a, a you know, a, a shunting yard in a station, and just pretending we have bullying here, bullying there, and I think we right. still see echoes of that today. Oh boy, yes, <laughs> just a little,
3: <laughs> just a little,
0: <laughs> just a yeah, little. just a little. So, you know, uh, this is one of the sort of gophers that, that stuck its head up out of the uh, out of the war and the underground war, and I mean we we have. Other main events, I mean, I wish we had days to talk, Joseph, but we have, unfortunately, sort of uh, minutes to talk in this particular show. Um, I have so many questions. You have so many incredible books, which I have not read all of them by any, by any means. I, I look forward to doing so. Um, but other large, significant events uh, that have happened in sort of recent history, other, other milestones that have led us to where we are today, mm-hmm. uh, do you think – that when we say they, we're, we're talking about uh, sort of Nazi International possibly as as, uh, as, as a they. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there is a correlation between what happened on the 11th of September uh, and this group?
6: Well, I have suspected it, and I, ha- I will go so far as to say I suspect it strongly, um, because in my thinking – uh, about 9/11, I wrote a book about it, and I don't even remember the title right off the top of my head. But in my thinking, there are not just two layers to 9/11. There's three. Mm-hmm. There's the public layer of of the narrative, the hijackers, the airplanes, the box cutters, and so on. That's that's level one. Level two is what most 9/11 truthers have researched and brought out, and that is the occurrence of all of those military drills on that day that were mimicking the actual events that occurred.
0: Surprise, surprise, war games.
6: Surprise, yeah, surprise, surprise, war games on the same day. And that has led people to the MIHOP and LIHOP hypotheses, that there was some element in the American deep state that was either allowing it to happen, let it happen on purpose, that's LIHOP, or made it happen on purpose that's my hop. Mm-hmm. So that's level 2 that there is a cabal behind it. I suspect and and try to argue this in my book about it that this whole operation was in turn penetrated by a third level that revealed its presence by the manner in which it brought the twin towers down. Because when you look at all of the different demolition models of the Twin Towers, we've got several different models, and they all have their strong points and weak points. We've got the conventional demolition model, which you can certainly see signs of. Yes. We have the, the uh, thermite model, which, again, there's a certain amount of evidence for that. Then you've got the, the mini-nuke model. Uh, And again, there's a little bit of evidence for that, namely the fires that persisted for so long, the high tritium and other radioactive readings around ground zero and so on and so forth. And then you've got the exotic technology electromagnetic weaponry model where you have completely uh, pulverized, vaporized columns and so on and so forth in the buildings Mm -hmm. afterwards. So all three models have something going for them, and it's at that point that you find the evidence for the more exotic technologies indicating a possible third player. Because let's remember, the 9-11 truthers are arguing that they staged the event in order to create the new Pearl Harbor that the uh, New American Century Political Action Committee was which, talking which about. Which was predicted. Which was predicted, right. Yes. And Bush himself signaled that when he talked after 9-11 about the new Pearl Harbor. Yeah, I'm, I'm on board with the message. We're sending in the troops. Mm-hmm. But at that point, if you've got a third player, you're more or less pinned into doing that. So in other words, they did not need to bring down the Twin Towers. All they needed to do was stage the attack. Bringing down the Twin Towers may have been someone else's act, and we were pinned. And I suspect strongly that the stock options, the puts, and so on and so forth, may point a finger in a certain direction because most of those puts were let by, guess who, Deutsche Bank.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes.
6: So, you know, <laughs> there's all sorts of stuff going on in the background of 9-11, not to mention the fact that some people have brought out the, the fact that there was all sorts of gold. There were suspensions of, of securities clearing and so on and so forth that also took place on that day. So there's layers and layers to this thing. And I think just thinking in terms of two Probably isn't sufficient. There may have been many players, some of them at odds with other deep players.
0: No, I think it's a fascinating perspective. Um, You know, the three different layers, at least, possibly. But um, the gold bullion being moved around uh, in the basements of, of, I forget which building it is in the complex, but certainly there was a lot of bullion stored there, but nobody knows exactly how much. Right. Um the fact that the the, the buildings did go into free fall, which you know presumably means that uh you know whatever was holding them up just suddenly disappeared right. that, as you say, it can happen through thermite or or conventional demolition, well, or perhaps something a little bit more special
6: my My biggest problem with with the the demolition models is that that building would have had to have been thoroughly prepped prior to that. Yeah. And there's my difficulty because there is some indication that there may have been prep work going on. But to have access to all of those load-bearing steel columns in the center of those two towers, that would have been very difficult to pull off and to do so in such a way to make the towers collapse all the way to the ground at freefall speed. So I think, yes, there that is sort of evidenced by absence of, of an indicator, perhaps, that there was a more exotic technology, perhaps, involved with
0: it. And we shouldn't forget the third tower, Building 7.
6: Well, I, again, I don't think that Tower 7 is actually a part of this, this uh, Layer 3 operation. I think it was certainly part of Layer 2, but I don't regard Tower 7 as significant for the hypothesis of exotic technology, perhaps having been used by some unknown third player it's the twin towers themselves that are the focus of this and the other the other buildings around the twin towers which show some anomalous uh damage and destruction uh tower i think six it was not tower seven that has that big hole (laughs) in it Mm. uh you know there's all sorts of strange stuff here uh, but for me, for me, Tower Seven is kind of a convenient distraction, and that's that's really kind of the way I view it. It's it's something to keep you look from from looking at the oddness and strangeness of the Twin Towers themselves.
0: Mm. I remember I met the the owner of the Twin Towers not so long after after the event. I think it may have been one one year or two years after the event. Mm-hmm. And I was introduced to him. I shook hands with him. I didn't really know who he was until, you know, it happened at that moment. Uh, incidentally, we were at the Monica Yacht Show. I, I don't know if he was window shopping or not, but um, <laughs> uh, the, you know, what, what do you say? Uh, you know, congratulations, or I'm very sorry, or what is, what, you know, what the hell happened, or right. <laughs> there was no time. But it's just, uh, you know, a point, a point in my, my timeline. But, um, you know, so that is one of the one of the many anomalous uh sort of milestones that occurred with an awful lot of question marks uh which could you know suggest that there was other technology certainly other motives other money involved right um I, well i, I, I and I, I, that's I, a
6: Oh, so, yeah. another bit of evidence for a possible third player here is is president bush's very odd behavior on the day you know he 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 indicates at the school he's going to fly back immediately to washington but then once air force one is airborne he flies to barksdale air base in louisiana which is the backup command for america's strategic nuclear forces
7: mm-hmm. and
6: once he's there he gives that very strange speech that does not make any reference to terrorism, that America's under trial or test or something. And then he flies on to Offutt Air Force Base, which is the headquarters of American Strategic Nuclear Forces. So, you know, I'm with Webster Tarpley here, looking to me like he's trying to establish or reestablish personal presidential control
0: over America's nukes.
7: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. That's very true. We, We should also not forget the... The fact that day before September the 10th, there was an announcement that uh, a few trillion dollars had been lost. So could not be accounted for.
6: Yeah. Two trillion dollars. So Donald Rumsfeld made that announcement.
0: Yep.
7: Yeah.
5: Yeah. Well, and and that, that, that brings me to building seven again, because it was my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that building seven housed all these computers that were, uh, had all of the securities transactions, etc. So all of those puts and calls and all of that that was in there, was destroyed along with the collapsing of that building
6: i have heard that too but i've also heard similar things about brokerage houses located on the floor some of the floors in the twin towers where the planes actually struck and apparently there was some sort of office of naval intelligence investigation of some of this stuff going on at the time of 9 11. so there was a huge financial thing or 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 scandal lurking in the background of all of this that apparently they were also trying to cover up
5: yeah so i have a i have a brother-in-law that's a, a, a major general and he said uh that and, and i and i was on a tour of insider tour kind of of the uh, pentagon and they said the the commander that was there when i was when i was touring um I talked at length about him and, and with about where that missile uh, hit the side of the building. It was not a plane. There was no debris, blah, 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 you know, mm-hmm. with all the earmarks of it. But he, he did confirm that the department that was taken out was the part that was investigating all of this yep. the Pentagon. Uh, I don't think that was random where it hit uh, at all. No. So this adds up to so they were covering up a lot of financial shenanigans or trying mm-hmm. And then uh, you know one of the things that I find interesting is you know there I still have the video of the woman standing outside building 7 talking about it collapsing while it was still <laughs> while it was
6: still there yes
5: <laughs> yes, yes if I remember correctly <laughs> she was a
6: BBC reporter
5: yeah right yeah. so it was obviously premeditated not not no plan here no 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 no
7: right exactly <laughs>
5: <laughs> well i wanted to actually get into a little bit about the um the banking system and the monetary stuff, since we're talking about how all that works, securities and all that. Um, and I wanted to talk about how, actually back to alchemy, uh, about how they created a the financial system out of nothing. It actually it is literally nothing. Um, you know, you, you have this little digital thing that goes around on a computer and it says you have funds or you don't. But there's no actual money behind it or there's no actual um, security behind it.
7: Mm-hmm.
5: Uh so can we go a little bit into that? Mm-hmm.
6: Well, I think I think you're looking with this great reset, you're looking at Mr. Globalone's efforts to move everybody into a cashless society, which, you know, like it or not, that's a one way mirror, folks. Because at that point you're not dealing with a currency. You're dealing with a corporate coupon that they can adjust the value of at the push of a button depending on whether or not you're good little boys and girls and thinking and saying what they want you to think and say. Uh, This is not a currency, so people need to quit referring to it as a currency. Currency is a store of value, and in all systems of human transaction that we have had thus far, at some point you have a physical medium of exchange, be it bullion, paper money, or something. You've got a physical medium of exchange behind it because that physical medium represents a store of value and a digital currency again the other problem with it is and, and i'm full, four square with Catherine Austin Fitz here there is no cyber system that is 100% secure none none mm-hmm. and if you're if you're getting into a system where all of the infrastructure of financial clearing is in the hands of the bankers. That's not a system you want to go into. And again, that system can be taken out quite literally by electromagnetic pulse or any number of other measures that would prevent you from accessing your so-called funds. So this is not a system that, you know, is going to do anybody any good except the bankers that control it.
5: Right. So uh, so they create. So, could we go a little bit for our listeners' uh, point of view on on how the banking system was actually created? I mean, from from way back in ancient, ancient times and what we have running now up to, let's say, you know, a little bit of history on the Bilderberg Group and. thing.
6: Well, the Bilderbergers, in my view, if you look at who set them up initially. You have, of course, the Rockefellers and the Rotten Childs, as I like to call them. But on the European side of things, who do you have? Well, you have Prince Bernard of the Netherlands. And I always like to point out that one of the attendees at many of those early Bilderberger meetings was a German banker who was at the time the head and CEO of Deutsche Bank, by the way, by the name of Dr. Hermann Josef Opps. Okay. Now, if you dig into Ops history, he at one time was the CEO of a handling bank in Berlin that was the bank of accounts for the Reich government during and before World War II. So, in other words, this is the banker that was writing his signature on Adolf Hitler's paycheck as Reich Okay. Mm. And this was, this was a prominent figure at those early Bilderberg meetings. Now, the reason I'm mentioning all of this, and Prince Bernard, let us remember, was a middle echelon manager for, guess who, IG Farben. So it has always looked to me like the early Bilderberg meetings were really set up to take all of that Axis loot, launder it into the Western banking system, and then re-launder it in the form of American aid back to Europe. So in other words, it's it's part of the structure of this hidden system of finance. And if you look at the way the bankers have operated, the way it looks to me, particularly in their manipulations of bullion prices, silver and gold particularly they have taken a a playbook right out of the most serene republic of Venice, you know, going all the way back to the Renaissance, if not before, because the way that Venice did in its, its major competitors on the world stage back then, particularly Florence, was precisely by manipulating bullion prices and bullion markets. So, this this is what i'm getting at here is this, this is a very very old system of finance because in venice you actually had a two-tiered system you had the banks discreta on on the rialto that were simply transferring money by making ledger entries in their ledger books so that was the public financial system. But behind the scenes, they're still dealing with good old-fashioned bullion and manipulating those prices for their own benefit. So this two-tiered structure of finance, if you look at it carefully, it's still in existence today because they're manipulating gold prices and silver prices like crazy. I hope, it is, I hope that's adequate to what you, what you wanted me to say.
5: No, well, no, it's great. I mean, it, it actually gets into this. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the money class and how they are manipulating it, and that's that's a a great explanation for it. So, um, gosh, I, we only have a couple minutes till break because I want to go into a different topic here, but I don't think we have enough time to get into that. So, I did want to kind of go. Well, we can come back to that possibly, but I wanted to talk about this whole financial, the moneyed class, or uh, if he calls it the minority, which I think is accurate, they most certainly are by by numbers the minority, but they they hold the money and the power right now. Um, but the pedophilia aspect of this and how mm-hmm. you know back in time and how these people are kept in line by basically blackmail,
7: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
5: and how that that system was inside of the banking system and inside of the the elite class. Um,
6: if you look at what Mr. Globalone is up to, they are up to creating or recreating slavery, and the the thing that is unique about slavery is they now have the means of perfecting the capital because now they can literally implant your body with with the means to track you so in other words, we're not dealing with with the antebellum period in this country where you know slaves would flee to the north and and disappear into the woodwork, so to speak. Um, Because in that sense, that that capital, that collateral, you know, that's what slavery is. It it views humanity as nothing but chattels, uh, can disappear, can get up and walk away. So they're busily trying to recreate a system, not only of slavery, but where the capital itself, the collateral, the slave, can be tracked anywhere. And this is part and parcel of, of the financial system that they're trying to set up. This is why we don't want a digital currency.
5: <laughs> and, and, and we ourselves don't want to have all that. Uh, you know, we, we've talked about it on this show about all the, the uh, Luciferian uh, patents. And oh, yes. With this, with this vaccine and the transhumanism. And that's exactly how they track. Right. Uh, and they can also control what you think or don't think and all kinds of great stuff from that. So, right. yeah, this is really, really evil. Um, so this goes again, I, I, you know, we're heading towards break. We can pick this up after the break, but I did want to talk a little bit again about how the criminal underground's working and the occult aspect of it. Uh, it Cause we know that the banking and the pedophilia go right together. Um, and and that's what we're dealing with. We're, we're going to be seeing a lot of this coming out in the news, I believe. I mean, I, I don't know what your feeling is on that, but I believe we're starting to hear an awful lot about it. Um, and, and we're going to hear a lot more. Uh, I think you know, that's, that's what's being revealed to the general public at this point.
6: Well, the key for me here is something called the Franklin Scandal. Back in the late 1980s. And I see we're getting ready to go to break, so I can pick that up perhaps after the break. Okay. But the Franklin scandal, I think, is a key crucial uh, tell, let's put it that way, on what's been going on.
5: Yeah. I mean, I, I know, it, it, you know, they used it. Even Oscar Wilde was, was used. Uh, in this yes. Um And that's how they manipulated him and, and did different things, silenced him. And, you know, they, they used this to exploit power. Uh, right. So this goes way back in history. So we are interviewing our guest Joseph P. Farrell, and our tonight's show is untangling our inverted world. We will return uh, with our co-host Timothy Saunders, Kynthia, and myself, Anetta.
1: from the beginning, uh, if you look back to English history, the common law and equity both developed under different systems. The common law was originally always the the original system of law which was biblically based and it was handed down orally from person to person over the years because there wasn't any any printing press or writing until the Middle Ages, right? Mm
7: -hmm.
1: Whereas equity, however, what would happen is the common law at that time was extremely strict. Very harsh. <laughs> and most people fail to, to realize the, uh, the strictness for. and I know, for example, um, one criminal charge sometimes could take four or five pages to lay it out of everyone and if you missed a, a, a dotting an eye, you, the, the guy could have the charge thrown out. So what developed was eventually people who thought that the common law was too harsh would petition the king for redress. And then the queen, king, I should say, or queen, would determine if they were going to have mercy on him and what they were going to do. Um, sometimes they were thrown to the wind and said, too bad, you're you're left. Other times they would get redress. And what would happen as more and more people started going to the king, he couldn't handle the workload. So he appointed it to the chancellor mm-hmm. and that he started doing it, which then became the court of chancery or equity. And of course, a number of principles developed in equity, I think there's 12 or 13 of them now, um, that developed over the years, where it basically was a a separate form of, of law based on fairness and various principles that developed parallel to the common law. And then early in the 1900s, They were fused into one court because you had different courts, common law and you had equity. And they fused them into one court where the same court would apply both systems of law. And if there was a conflict, and only if there was a conflict, the common law would prevail. Hi, I'm David Kevin Lindsay from Canada. I would urge everybody to be able to support the other side of the news. With the news media all over the world essentially promoting the government narrative on virtually every issue out there, everybody needs an alternative source of accurate, truthful information. And the other side of the news provides that information that source of information from a variety of speakers all over the world with personal knowledge and experience that they can share with everybody in over 160 countries that they're involved and that they go to to show everybody in the world what they are doing to support and encourage everybody else to also stand up for freedom issues throughout the world i would urge everybody on a regular basis to listen and support the other side of the news
5: Good evening, and welcome back to The Other Side of the News. And we are here this evening with our guest, Dr. Joseph Farrell, and he is joining us for the show, Untangling Our Inverted World. And uh, Timothy, Cynthia, and myself are having a great time with this interview. I'm going to finish up with a question here about the franklin scandal that we left off before the break so go on joseph well the franklin scandal
6: if you remember was this scandal that broke during the uh first year or so of of the bush one administration and it was discovered that there had been late-night tours of the White House. Uh, part of this eventually turned up a a Washington, D.C. house that was being used to surreptitiously record people engaged in sexual acts and so on. And the allegations were with minors. And this led back to Omaha, Nebraska, and the Franklin Savings and Loan, where a bunch of kids, adolescent kids, had come forward and Sworn out affidavits, claiming that local politicos basically had been involved in a child sex slave uh pedophilia and even to some extent ritual ring, and that these kids had been flown around the country they'd been flown out to California they'd been flown to washington d c and so on and it's called the Franklin scandal because. At the epicenter of this was a fellow by the name of Larry King, not not the radio and television host, by the way, but, but the owner of the Franklin Savings and Loan Credit Union. And that right there is an indicator of what you're dealing with because, first of all, you have banking. Second of all, you have a, a sex slavery ring – that's being run all over the country. So we've got two things to bear in mind here, banking and human trafficking, essentially. And the ring was being run to ensnare people of power and influence, not only locally, but nationally. There's two good books about the Franklin scandal. One is is by John DeCamp and the other one is by Nick Bryant. And if people are not familiar with the Franklin Scandal, those are good books to start if you're interested in researching those. But the patterns that we've seen in these these child sex scandals that emerge every now and then in the news are usually the same if you look at them carefully. the The business at Penn State with the former coach Joe Paterno and so on and so forth, same thing. Uh, the the Jeffrey Epstein story, and so on. Again, same thing. People with, involved in high finance, involved in human trafficking, and so on and so forth. So what they're doing is they're basically creating control files, as, as Catherine Fitz likes to call them, on people in positions of power, get them into a compromising position, and then threaten them with blackmail, and so on and so forth. But I the, the scale of it, the way I look at it, it's important to view these not, these stories not as isolated incidents, but as interconnected, because it, truly to pull all of this off, you have to have an infrastructure and it has to be global. And it has to, to in order to function properly, it has at some point to have the tacit uh, complicity of law enforcement. And again, the Franklin scandal exhibits that all over the place.
5: Fascinating. So th- this all goes back to what we're we're starting to see be revealed to the general public, right? The same same story, different day, right? Right, right, mm-hmm.
6: right. Uh, you know, a part of these child sex networks and, and human trafficking networks are, are religious institutions, the churches. You know, we think of all the Vatican scandals, but trust me, it's not just limited to, to the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, it's it's all over, and this indicates that that this is a major component of this hidden system of finance. It's another way of of making money through illegal operations.
5: Yes, yeah, so they're creating a system where they're obtaining power this way, and they're maintaining
0: right. it. Oh, right, exactly, exactly.
5: Yeah, brutally genius. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: And that's I think that this system has been in in play for for eons, for for all time. Surely, I mean this. You know, I, I'm just very aware that when we make comments, I mean, I know just now I'm not picking up particularly, but just a few minutes ago, you were saying that you're starting to see more uh, of a certain news item coming into the media, for example. Mm-hmm. But I mean, when the media is controlled by, you know, six people on the planet or six organizations on the planet, then it's it's more than likely no accident that anything gets on the news these days. Right. So you know, it's not a question of it coming on the news. Therefore, you know, we're exposing this, this um, amazing new headline. It is a fact, it's a plan, it's a script, and we can see that on a day-to-day basis. All right. I think, I think we've seen it through Brexit and we've seen it through, you know, this, this pandemic that's going on at the moment. It, it's just a script that's being rolled out. Uh, yes. Joseph, when we last talked, strangely enough, I I'm sure you're, don't remember, but we appeared on uh, Richard C. Hoagland's show in 2016. It was the day of the UK referendum to get out of uh, Europe, mm-hmm. and while this in itself is not particularly relevant, perhaps, but I think what is interesting is that after the vote was uh, came in, it was something like 52-48%. Mm-hmm. The UK and the European uh, Union basically argued bitter. Um, yeah, bitched at each other for the next three or four years and so on uh, so they finally came to some sort of hurricane agreement at the 11th hour or the 12th hour even um, but I think what it shows is that the whole political system uh, was focused so heavily on this then who the hell was running the rest of the country and the rest of the union um, I think it's just another example of how the governments are here more to entertain us, to give us a perception of democracy mm-hmm. as opposed to actual governing.
7: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and I think that that's very apparent in the same way that I'm, now I'm jumping around a little bit. I'm very conscious of time. But I remember also going back to the 9-11 conversation we had earlier where Bush, which I believe some people now call the shrub, which I, I have to say, I do find rather enjoyable.
6: That's my nickname um, for him. Yes.
7: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> the shrub. <laughs> so he, when he was sort of uh, reading nursery rhymes or, or, or children's books in, while, while the attack was going on and he had that sort of like vacant look on his face mm-hmm. or perhaps a slightly more vacant look than normal, um, you know, people were expecting action and, and sort of heroic from him, something along those lines, but he's just looking into space reading a book. But it looked to me like his body language looked like he had just been told to stand aside and let this go on. And what I'm seeing now is that happening on a global um, level where all of the countries around the world are being told to stand aside and basically let these WHO pandemic regulations come in and and govern um, while the world is basically being strangled and locked down under the perception of, in my opinion, a a hoax. Mm -hmm. What what are your views? I know it's a bit of a, a violent...
6: Well, I, I do get the impression. I mean, look at the biden Enko regime. Uh, this guy is not functional and, you know, issuing all these executive orders that he doesn't even know what he's signing. So, yeah, it does look to me that at least insofar as, as the West is concerned, this is what you're dealing with. I don't think it's the case with Russia or China, although they'll certainly play along with the script. But in Russia's case, if you go back and look at Mr. Putin's speeches since he's been in power, they have all at some point taken direct aim at, at Mr. Globaloning and this idea of creating – pardon me – a one-world government, which is going to be totally in the hands of corporations and bankers. Because mm-hmm. over and over, Mr. Putin stresses the necessity of sovereign states retaining a role. So I don't think it's completely unanimous across the board that this is what you see, but I do think your scenario does hold true insofar as you look at you look at the West and more importantly if you look at what what some people call the anglosphere um, the the western powers that are english speaking the United kingdom Canada United States, and so on I do think it's the case there they're using they're using a health crisis really to drive a a political agenda, and, and the health crisis itself is largely blown way, way out of proportion to what's actually the case. So I do think that's the case, um, and you know, it's not—it's not going to go away overnight. But there are already, uh, I think, some hopeful signs of cracks beginning to appear in the edifice.
0: Oh, most definitely. Yeah. Yes, and they don't realize that it—it's it, it's such a widespread control.
6: Well, America, American Americans are, for the most part, the dumbest people on the planet. And that's very dangerous because we're turning into a third world country. We, we don't remember how to do things anymore. I saw articles recently that the Air Force is contracting to people, uh, to corporations, to help them reverse engineer some parts of its own B-2 stealth bomber.
7: <laughs> well, wow. you
6: know, what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that... You can't, you can't teach kids mathematics if they're worried about all the white supremacy and Hellenization, for that matter, in mathematics. You know, uh, if, if they're worried about that, if that's what they're teaching them in calculus, then you're not going to be able to do any calculus anymore. You know? so, the old school is being lost. The old school is being lost, and that's the problem. You know, all of this wonderful progressivism is coming home to roost, and it's going to be the absolute undoing of the country and of the civilization itself. And that's why I tell people, own the civilization. Uh, you, you've got to. This is no longer an option. Uh, it's 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 out of hand. And on top of that, we're dealing with co-opted institutions all over the place: the academy, the government, the churches. You know, virtually every every institution. Has been co-opted to some degree, and now they're going after the last one, and that's the family.
2: So mm-hmm. we need that book.
6: <laughs> this is the last <laughs> stand.
2: This is this is it. You know. Well, I this, what have can the average person do? What can the everyday person do? We need that book.
6: <laughs> well, I, I've been I've been thinking about doing it. The problem is my website has grown so much. I have so little time anymore for books. Uh, you know, it's it's getting to the point that I'm racing just to try and keep up with the website. But um I, I do hope to do it. I, I did write uh part of the book years and years ago, but um
2: well, it's, hopefully this will be the uh, nudge to resurf re you know I, I know what it is to be immersed in web work, believe me.
6: Oh yeah, it's it it's time consuming. It, Very it just, time consuming is you know i get emails from hundreds of people and i go through each and every one and that's you know very time consuming
2: right but maybe maybe you could let them know you know for two weeks you're not going to hear from me or one month you're not going to hear from me because you all need to hear what i'm going to write about
6: <laughs> no i can't do that because the website would die and that's my income you know it's, it's one of uh-huh. those catch 22 situations but uh-huh. joseph
0: i have to say that from i've been you know, watching what you've been doing uh for for years um, but I always imagined you kind of had a team to put together what you do because, you know, it, it, it's obviously everything's so well written. And I'm not just trying to flatter you, but, I mean, the point is it is well written. It's well researched. That's one of the, your, you know, your big credentials is that if you read something that you've written, then it's well put together and, and it, it's uh, well considered. But I mean, well, to do that and the website <laughs> and the books, just you.
6: It's just me. I, I have a technical uh, partner for the website business that handles all the technical things because I'm a I'm a computer klutz, but um, the books and every re- you know all the content on the website is me and the books are me and it's just me and wow. you know it's I I determined when I started off writing these weird books that I was going to try and adhere to academic standards of doing so, because there's nothing that sends me more than opening up a book of alternative research and finding no footnotes. (laughs) Exactly. You know, that just sends me, (laughs) you know, if you're going to speculate, at least tell people you're speculating and at least give people a clue as to where you're getting all of this stuff from. But you know, it's, 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 it's it's just me and it's it's kind of exhausting you know i i used to i'm amazed i used to be able to put out two books a year and i just you know i just don't have the time for it anymore
0: Mm. well there's also an awful lot more going on in the world these days which is another thing i mean you go back 2016 and we were on the other side of midnight Mm -hmm. i mean i wasn't very you know frequenting that that show very much in those days but you know we used to listen to richard talk about Maybe this event's going to happen, maybe it's going to happen in the next few months, maybe it will, maybe it won't. And then you know, a couple of months have passed, and maybe something would happen. But I mean, frankly, there's about three or four things happening a week at the moment. All right. All
6: right. Well, just, just look at Richard and all the massive amount of work that he did over the years.: Yes, and you know, I can tell you that it's it, having visited his home on a couple of occasions. I can tell you that, that it's a nonstop process for him. Mm-hmm. and for anybody you know and for anybody else involved in this it's it's just nonstop. you're you're constantly doing it or thinking about it or or pacing the floor about it or something <laughs> you know? so it's it's constant
0: uh, absolutely well congratulations and thank you because uh you know i, I absolutely on a, on a weekly basis i i visit your site and i i always tune in for your podcast on thursdays and uh
2: you know, oh,
6: my this. news and views from the nefarium?
0: <laughs> yes, indeed.
2: I'd like to jump in here.
7: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> so I'm really enjoying this conversation. And Joseph, I'm curious. I always like to ask this question because you are a man that is so, I would say, multidimensional. You, you, you like span the cosmos in many directions and on many levels. And we're outlining all these dark, nefarious forces and what they are doing. And I like to bring it back to what can we do? What do you see us as a human species on the brink of either disaster or flight? You know, um, I think consciousness is at that place where we're about to make a leap. And I'm asking you, how do you see consciousness play with this? And what do you see as our options of what we can do on our side?
6: Well, that's a very good question and I wish I had the wisdom of Solomon to give an answer, but my answer thus far has been to at least my website people to own the culture. And by that, I mean, if you look at Western culture, it has three basic pillars. It's got the, the, jewish component the idea of contract or compact or covenant or what have you Uh, you have the christian component the idea of incarnate logos of incarnate reason that is a personal principle not an abstract you know uh not an abstract one and then the third one being you have the humanist impulse the the enlightenment impulse of of sovereign individuals. And if you look at the way things have been going in Western history in, in the last 200 years or so, it's that third one that has basically tried to move the other two aside. And I think this is part of the problem that we're in. So I urge people to get back, own the culture, find out about our traditions, and try to preserve as many of them as you can within your... Within your network of associates or your family, or what have you, um, and the the other thing I tell people is is that we're in the crunch time, so it's very important to figure out what you're willing to die for. Mm. And I, I put it that bluntly because that's literally what a lot of these people that that uh, are orchestrating events want to see happen. Now, I don't think they're going to be successful. And I I don't think they're going to be successful for one fundamental reason, and that is what they're trying to put into place is not only inhuman, but anti-human. It's no accident that these lockdowns were targeting restaurants, churches, synagogues, in other words, places where people congregate together and talk to each other. That's what they want to shut down and it's all the more important then for us to realize that the agenda that they're about is a nihilistic one it's an anti-human agenda and and to fight that with every every opportunity and in and the important thing to remember is to do so in little ways
7: mm-hmm.
6: in little ways because we're none of us capable none of us have the power to fight in a major way But we can fight in little ways to throw inertia and monkey wrenches into the works and so on and so forth.
2: Do you see – I I see what you're saying about in little ways. These are actions that we can take, external actions we can take. And I'm curious, what do you see as an internal action that we can take with our consciousness? Prayer. Prayer.
6: Prayer, (laughs) yes. And by that, I mean spelled out – let me give an example Cynthia, and this this focuses on churches why do you think they were so adamant on shutting churches down well most churches have a liturgy and what's a liturgy well a liturgy is a set text it's a it's a specified formal group intention mm-hmm. and that's extremely powerful so you know their first target back in the 1960s was to get all the churches to change their text to change their liturgical texts So the first thing to understand is by prayer, I mean, you specify your formal intention, not only for your own protection, but, you know, Christ said, pray for your enemies. He didn't say what to pray. Mm -hmm. He just said, pray for them. Well, I pray for them all the time. Number one, that they repent. But number two, if they don't, that every scheme that they have would be bound and come to absolute naught. And that they would be caught, like the Psalms say, in their own traps and snares. So, you know, this, we have to get back to a fundamental rule of spiritual life. And that is specifying explicitly the formal intention. And the best way to do that is familiarize yourself with those texts that embodied those formal intentions for so long. Mm
2: -hmm. And I, and I, I'm noticing more and more, like Bruce Lipton talks about this as well, that mm-hmm. when we're formalizing those intentions, we're actually calling forth that Godhead that lives within each person.
7: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
6: Yeah, it's, it's you know, the biblical distinction is image and likeness. Well, the image is part of our nature. It's not going to go away. But the likeness to God is something that we can work on. That's and something so, we can work
2: on. I'm so curious. You've brought up the word God. Mm-hmm. Would you like to share with us how you perceive- Well, I view God exactly
6: as, as the creeds of the Orthodox Christian Church outline, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In mm-hmm. other words, I don't believe in a God in general. I really don't. But others do. And it's equally important for those that, that do think in those terms to have those formally specified intentions in their, in their prayer life or whatever they do. Uh, but for me, you know, those things are embodied in liturgical texts and so on. So that's how I pray.
2: Right. right. Another thing that I'm aware of is that, you know, what you focus on, mm-hmm. you bring about, you know, that yes. which I have feared has come upon me. And I look back to all these movies that have been created with dystopias. and Oh, yeah. You know, the end of the world, apocalyptic worlds. Well, what they have been doing consciously is to gather the mass, you know, the masses and the collective focusing right. of these realities and helping to bring it about. And Bingo. So, as you're pointing out, the reason for closing the churches is because those are places where they're gathering the intention to focus to bring about a loving solution.
6: Precisely. Precisely. and And this is the other thing I think that you've touched on that needs to be said about owning the culture turn that stuff off don't feed don't feed it don't feed it you know i when i moved back here uh, about five years ago i simply i hooked up my internet cable but it came with cable tv but i haven't hooked up the cable tv in five years and i don't miss it and one reason (laughs) one reason i don't is i'm not exposed to this daily uh lamestream media 24 7. Uh, Fear porn news that they put out Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm not reacting to every little thing that Trump does Or that Biden does Or, you know, whoever happens to be in in the White House in Swampington, D.C. Uh, And that's the other thing we've got to get over We don't need to react to every little thing in the news
2: Right, nor do we need to embrace the lifestyles that they're painting as normal
6: Bingo! (laughs) Bingo! And part of that is not using their language Right. Part of that is not. Remember, I remember back in the '80s when forms changed from "Is your sex male or female?" to "What's your gender?" Yeah. And I was back uh, alive back in the time that everything changed from mankind to humankind and all of this nonsense. And I said, "That's where they're going to go with this." So now, and and way back then, Cynthia, I was predicting that we were going to end up having all of these ridiculous genders, you know, 112 by the last article
3: that I saw,
6: (laughs) you know, and on and on this goes. You signal, this is a hallmark that people need to take away. You signal in any Gnostic system, you signal your agreement with the agenda by using the language they promote. So, you know, I'm an old curmudgeon. I don't use humankind. I use mankind. I'd so like a, to
2: see a book on that, Joseph. <laughs> well,
6: <laughs> I've actually been thinking about writing it because, you know, all of these techniques were are very old. You know, Gnosticism practiced them in the second century. The, the Gramscian uh, cultural Marxists, you know, fine-tuned them. The Bolsheviks certainly used them and so on and so forth. So in other words, these are very, very old techniques. And they're kind of uh, – it's kind of word magic in a way, because what you're doing is you're driving people, without their even being consciously aware that you're they're doing it to them, you're driving people to adopt a cosmology simply by the language that you're forcing them to use. mm mm-hmm. So you know, again, this is this all goes back to formally specified intention. What's your formally specified intention? Now, being a curmudgeon, you know, I was brought up in a school system where the word "man" did not mean male. <laughs> you
7: mm-hmm. know,
6: so I didn't, I you know, it's never been part of my thinking that when I'm talking about mankind that I'm excluding women.
7: <laughs> right. It's right. Just,
6: it's, this is not part of my thinking. But the way that they're couching things today is. They have created a whole system where certain terms like mother and father can now be understood to be offensive to some people. So we should quit using them. So they, if you're if surrendering power.
2: A, I'm sorry. You go well, ahead. you're
6: surrendering power to a bunch of people on on remaking the language itself. And why remake the language? Well, it's because they want to remake humanity.
2: And they want to divide us.
6: Bingo. 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 <laughs> Bingo. And the old language worked just fine for keeping everybody together. (laughs) On and on this goes. The problem with progressivism is you can, you know, a friend of mine made this observation to me. The problem with progressivism is what's the goal? Mm
7: -hmm.
6: When do we arrive? Well, they don't specify that because it's the process itself that gives them their power. So they can never specify a goal.
2: Hmm. And I'm also thinking here what comes to my mind also is resist not evil, because if you're resisting them, then you're actually echoing in the resistance, you're echoing what they're doing, and you're keeping it in motion, so to speak.
6: Well, I think you have to resist. At some point, at some point, you're dealing with people who are incapable of understanding an argument, in other words, their whole approach is force, and at some point it, ha- it will blow up in their face because force is usually met with force when it comes down to the final analysis. Mm-hmm. So this is the other reason why formally specified intentions are good. We, we can either fight on this battleground now or we can fight on much more serious ones later on down
0: the line.
2: I see what you're saying, but I also when I when I think of resist not evil, I'm thinking of like an internal sense. For example, with the patriarchy, you've got this domination model, you know, domineering model. Whereas,
6: well, the I, other would, I would
2: dissent dominion. from that
6: view. I would dissent from that view almost immediately. Okay. Because if there's a scholar at Oxford back in the 1930s, his name was Unwin. And he wrote a massive sociological study of what happens to societies when they start tinkering around with these types of terms and putting into, these, into, into society these types of models. They inevitably break down. They inevitably break down. Patriarchy for me is a good thing because this is the exact designation of God the Father. He's the Father source. Mm-hmm. And if you go back to if you go back to ancient times, like I pointed out in grit of the gods, the ancient model was of music was the octave was the feminine
7: mm-hmm.
6: the the masculine were all the notes in between the differentiating notes, and I think the ancients knew something there because if you look at at males, we carry sexual differentiation. We're responsible in offspring for the sex of the offspring.
7: Mm-hmm. So
6: in other words, ancients were thinking in a very patriarchal way, but not in the way that has come to be uh, the modern model of patriarchy. In fact, okay. the modern model of patriarchy is exactly an inverted one. mm
2: mm-hmm.
6: It's twisted. I think patriarchy is a very good thing.
2: <laughs> I think where I'm, I think where I'm trying to go with this, and perhaps I haven't articulated it correctly yet, is that I think there's a model outside where someone is trying to dominate another. Then there's another model where within well, your Why is that? Why
6: is that necessarily patriarchy? That well, be no, no. Me, let's
2: take away the word patriarchy. Let's. That, I, I will agree with that's you on that. Better. I, I will agree good. with you on that, but the, the, the opposite or let's say another way of approach is where it's dominion. In other words, it's from within your consciousness, you hold that intent and that intent slows out into your world. And in physics, you know, the particles follow your attention, so it's it's not a force over it's a force from within that is echoing out into the universe and right
6: right but my point my point is is again the idea of patriarchy being this horrible bad thing is part of uh, is part of the language and agenda mean that i'm talking about with, with gnosticism
2: i'm going to agree with you on that and i and i thank you for that perspective
6: yeah, I you know, you can, you can find domination memes within feminism. You can find domination means within matriarchy. Oh,
2: these, yeah. These
6: are, these are code words that are thrown around with such abandon these days mm-hmm. that they really, you know, as I point out, patriarchy is a word that comes from the Greek, and it means archia and it's literally father source. That's what it means, and that's all it means. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's all it means
2: and since source is at the center of all of us it includes
5: all of us it's bingo. not just meant.
6: bingo 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 bingo
5: <laughs> bingo
6: bingo bingo you know this you know this this is uh, part of that vast christian heritage that has been deliberately shunted aside in recent years that people don't want to talk about and they don't want to talk about number one because most people are, are in my opinion, theologically illiterate. And number two, you can't talk about it today or defend any sort of traditional language or value or tradition without being immediately excoriated.
7: Right, really. But, you cool. know,
6: I'm, I'm, I'm here to tell you, I'm a curmudgeon, and I'm going to go down to my last breath defending that tradition. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, and the word was made flesh, you know. Bingo. And (laughs) we, (laughs) you you know, it's this, what you're talking about, intention, words are power. And we do need to redefine what words are for us and own what, you know, recognize that words are swords that can cut and become conscious of the use of language and how it is manipulating our consciousness and our traditions and our communities. And
6: the word didn't become flesh without a woman,
2: (laughs) as I recall (laughs) the story. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. We're coming up on the end of the show. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. We've got just a few minutes. Is there something here you'd like to put out there, Joseph, that well, you want you the know, audience to carry a lot in their heart?
6: Yeah, we've covered a lot of ground. If people are interested, um, all of my books are on my website. Just click on the book tab. Uh, there's quite a lot of them out there. But, uh, yeah, we've touched on a lot of ground. But I do think that, you know, it's, it's crucial for people to understand that we've got to start fighting back in terms of our intentions. Uh, and being aware, you know, do the self-examination, you know, that's, that's part of forming good intentions and specifying them. This, this is absolutely crucial to where we're in now, because we are fighting people with a completely different cosmology, completely different.
2: And, and dear run, we're at that time. So
0: yeah.
2: thank you all. It's been a wonderful show, Timothy, Anetta.
0: Thank you so much, Joseph. I think it's, I'd love to continue talking, Well, I think it's important to remember as well as that in our own power, we wake up every morning with our own power and it's our choice whether we give it away or not. And that's something we should all reflect on every day. And
6: be thankful for that power. Indeed. Yes.
0: Thank you very much, Jess. Thank you you for having me back on, guys. Despite the initial unpleasant realization of the truth, you will see there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is an increasing number of respected journalists, writers, politicians, doctors, lawyers, influencers, artists, activists, and innovators who are wide awake and are already making great impact. All they require from you is to unplug from the mainstream and social media propaganda to make your own independent research and to stop acquiescing and to stand up for what you believe in with respect to others. Remember, you were born with power and you wake up each day with power it is up to you to choose to retain or give it away.